After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and after their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Um, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? New teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travels throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for the, your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Well, um, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, 2003 it was, uh, Nicolette and I went on a journey together. I see some new faces with us today. So for those who don't know, although you may have guessed Nicolette and my wife, um, we flew from Cape Town, where we, where we lived at the time, to Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, from there, we made our way northeast through the Carolinas up to Washington DC, then on to New York where we stayed with family for a few days, um, and then further north into Vermont. Uh, very beautiful. We went to the, the home of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. We visited a maple syrup factory uh, and an apple farm, uh, all very lovely. From Vermont we turned south, made our way back through Pennsylvania. Um, among other things we visited the site of the famous Gettysburg battle, 
um, and also the world's biggest teddy bear shop uh, from Pennsylvania down through Virginia and the Carolinas back to Atlanta and then back home. Uh, our trip was about three and a half weeks, but we'd spent six months planning for it. Six months of looking at maps. Um, of course, Google Maps didn't exist yet, so you couldn't just ask it for directions. You actually had to work out routes and distances on a huge fold-up paper map and then figure out how long it would take to drive from here to there. We knew our overall budget and we broke it down into you know, this much for fuel, this much for motels every night, so much for food every day, this much for spending money, and so on. Piles of maps and guidebooks and budgets and routes and lists of places to visit and things to do and people to see. Six months of planning. And we had a fantastic time seeing the sights and discovering a little bit of America. Now, some journeys are like that. You are in control of the agenda. You plan in advance. You decide where you're going. You decide the route, the budget, the activities. You have it all mapped out. And all being well, your journey goes according to plan and you have a great time discovering a new place. But not all journeys are like that. Some journeys are different. For example, some years before going to America with Nicolette, I went with my father. I didn't know the route or how long it would take to drive from one place to the next. I didn't know the budget. I didn't know where we would sleep each night. I didn't have any plan. My father did. He was going to America for work for a few weeks to lecture at various universities. And he said, come with me. So I did. Now, that was a different kind of journey. It was more about getting to know my dad in a deeper way getting to see something of his work, getting to understand his passion for his students, for his teaching, for his field of expertise. That journey, for me, wasn't so much a trip around America as it was a deeper discovery of my father, who he is, the work he had given his life to, the things that moved his heart. And that kind of journey, the second kind, is the kind of journey that the first disciples were on and that Mark tells us about in his gospel. Now, you'll remember from last week, Jim started us off in our journey through Mark's gospel, and he showed us from the opening verses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised one, testified to by John the Baptist, commended by God the Father, and opposed by Satan. And all those things are 100% true, but it's important to remember that Mark wrote this based on the Apostle Peter's mature reflections on his journey following Jesus 30 years later. The Peter we meet in Mark's gospel is at the beginning of his journey with Jesus, as are all the disciples. Mark tells us the answer up front. He tells us who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, the Promised One, Beloved of the Father, and so on. As readers of Mark's gospel, we are let in from the beginning. It's like Mark has given us the map and the guidebook up front. But the disciples in the story didn't have all that. They didn't know all these things yet. And so now as we dive into the story, we're going to walk with Simon Peter and the other disciples. We're going to journey alongside them as they discover just who Jesus is. And wherever you are 
on the journey of discovering who Jesus is. Mark has something to say to you right now. Now, I can't uh, see on my screen right now all who are with us. Maybe you've heard of Jesus, heard some stories about him, but you don't really know who he is or what he's like. Well, let's walk with Jesus and his disciples this afternoon, and you might just discover that he is everything your heart has ever searched for. Maybe you've known and followed Jesus for decades. Well, then you already know that every time you go for a walk with Jesus, you discover more of who he is. Wherever you are on the journey of getting to know Jesus, Mark has something to say to you in this passage. So in the passage that was read for us today from uh, verse 14 to the end of chapter one, we're going to focus on three things about Jesus, three things and what they mean for us. First, we'll learn something about Jesus's power and authority. Second, we'll discover Jesus's mission. And third, we'll see something of his heart, his power and authority, his mission, his heart. If, if it's easier for you, you might prefer to remember those three things as questions. First, who is he? Second, why did he come? And third, what is he like? That's what we'll find out on our journey today. So let's go. First, Jesus's power and authority. We'll start in verse 21. Jesus and his disciples were in Capernaum. It was the morning of the Sabbath day, and the leaders of the local synagogue had invited Jesus as a traveling rabbi to give the sermon, which he did. And what happened? All who heard him were amazed, verse 22, or astonished, your translation might say. They were amazed. They were struck by his teaching. And a demon the unclean or impure spirit in verse 23 cried out, Have you come to destroy us, Jesus of Nazareth, Holy One of God? What's going on here? Where does this kind of spiritual power and authority come from? Mark tells us in verse 22 that Jesus taught as one who had authority. But the scribes, the teachers of the law, also in verse 22, they taught in the synagogue every week, and they had authority too, at least of a certain kind. But their teaching didn't do this. Their teaching didn't strike to the hearts of their hearers, much less cause demons to cry out in fear. What's going on? Well, we need to notice two things. What was being said and who was saying it? Mark has already told us the substance of Jesus' preaching. If you look back a bit to verses 14 and 15, it's not necessarily that Jesus used these exact words every time he preached, though he probably did use them sometimes. But the essential substance of his preaching was, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Well, what does the announcement of the coming of the kingdom of God mean for every rival kingdom? And just notice, by the way, that there is no interaction between Jesus and the man in this episode. There are plenty of other places in the Gospels where Jesus clearly demonstrates his love for people who are um, harassed or oppressed or bound by Satan. But in this account, Jesus doesn't interact with the man at all. 
And that's quite important for understanding what Mark is trying to tell us here. Mark records this as a confrontation of kingdoms. And what does Jesus' message mean for the enemy kingdom? Your time is up. Your days are done. How did Satan and his demons hear those words? As just some random words in a regular Sabbath synagogue message? No. As a declaration of war? No, not even that. There is no battle between God and any creature, not even Satan. This was simply an announcement of truth. The time has come. The days of the kingdom of God are at hand. The days of every rival kingdom will soon be over. And who was saying these things? Well, if you turn back to, to uh, verses 2 and 3 of Mark 1, John the Baptist, like every prophet before him, said, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight his paths. In other words, get ready. The king is coming. Prepare. He will soon arrive. Now jump forward to verse 14 again. We need to feel verse, uh, verse 14 the way Mark means us to. John was put in prison. His ministry of preparation uh, of warning was over. Notice how he phrases it. After John, Jesus came. The days of preparation are finished. The thing itself has now arrived. The king is coming. The king has come. And he has come proclaiming. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Well, when the king arrives, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the beloved son, the Lord, the prophesied one. When the king arrives and proclaims to every rival kingdom, time's up. The days of the one true king have come. Satan and his minions rightly recognize the beginning of their destruction. And human hearts, those in the synagogue that morning, hearing this announcement, from the lips of the king, know that they are in the presence of a power and an authority that cannot be explained away. No matter how much our modern 21st century enlightened scientific worldview wants to deny it, the fact is that we, spirit, we humans are spiritual beings as much as we are physical. And no matter how much people might want to argue away spiritual reality, when the king of all creation speaks, all his creatures, even those in rebellion against him, recognize his voice as the voice of the king. The first thing Mark wants us to discover on our journey with Jesus, the power and authority of the king. His authority as the king of God's kingdom over every rival kingdom. Notice also, and very briefly, from verses 29 to 34, his power to heal. Jesus and the disciples left the synagogue and went to Simon Peter's house. He lived almost next door, as archaeological records also tell us. So they went to his place for lunch. Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law. And then later that evening, from verse 32, crowds of sick people were brought, brought to Jesus. And verse 34, he healed them. Now, remember from the Genesis account that human beings are the pinnacle of creation. By showing power over human bodies, 
even over their physical life and death, Jesus is showing that he holds power over all creation. Mankind was made to rule over creation as stewards of God the Creator. Mark shows us here that Jesus has the power to heal or to allow to die. Jesus has the power over the pinnacle of physical creation. Therefore, Jesus has power over all creation. Jesus has all power in the spiritual realm. Jesus has all power in the physical realm. And the days in which God his Father has permitted rebellion and defiance are drawing to an end. The time has come, he proclaims. The kingdom has come because the king has come. And that by itself is not good news. Not for us, not for anybody, because as the Bible tells us elsewhere, we are all rebels. In Romans chapter 2 from verse 12 to 16, the word of God explains that the requirements of God's law are written on our hearts. We know right from wrong because God has written it on our hearts. Our consciences tell us so no one has any excuse before God. All will perish, Romans says. And this will take place, Romans 2 verse 16, on the day when God judges the secrets of all people through Jesus Christ. Jesus has all power. Jesus has all authority. And Jesus will one day judge all people. Repent, therefore. Do you see that in verse 15? Repent. Not rejoice. <laughs> Repent and believe the good news. Well, what is the good news then that we are called to believe? We need to know it because the king, the king with all power, all authority, the king who will judge all men has arrived and proclaimed the time has come. So whatever the good news is, we need to be told it. Now we'll see that as we continue our journey and discover Jesus's mission and his heart. So on to our second point, discovering Jesus's mission. Now, please hold your Bibles open and follow with me. I want to take a, a quick big picture scan of our passage and into the early verses of chapter two. It's so important to see the big picture flow of Mark's accounts. So we'll pick up from verse 21 and just follow with me. Verses 21 to 28, Mark shows us Jesus's power and authority over, Satan's, over Satan and over the demons. Then from verses 29 to 34, Mark shows us Jesus's power to heal. Then verses 35 to 37, the disciples go searching for Jesus early one morning as he's praying. Everyone is asking for you, they tell him. You're the biggest star in town, more popular than Michael McIntyre. We need to set up a marquee down on the beach and start recruiting. In no time, we'll have an army ready to follow you. And with you as our leader, for sure, we'll get rid of the Romans and restore the glory of Israel. And in verse 38, Jesus replied, that's not why I came. I came to preach the good news, not to impress people with my power and authority, not even primarily to defeat Satan, not primarily to heal the sick. I will do those things, but I came 
to preach the good news. And then what's the next thing he does? Verse 40 to 45, he heals someone. Now, pause there. Simon comes to him. There are crowds of people here asking for healing, Jesus. Jesus responds, no, Simon, I, I didn't come to be a wonder worker healer. I came to proclaim the good news. And then the very next thing he does is to heal someone. Does that strike you as curious? It does me. He's just said that's not what his ministry is about. And then he does it. And on top of that, why does Mark tell us about this healing separately? He's just told us in verse 34, Jesus healed many who had various diseases. Why does this one need a dedicated report? Well, because in this healing report, we begin to discover what the good news is. We begin to discover Jesus' mission. We'll come back to that in a moment. But first, let's just finish our big picture overview. So notice what comes after this healing in the beginning of chapter 2. It's the story where four men uh, um, bring a paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed. And in verse 5, Jesus says to the paralyzed guy, your sins are forgiven. The local religious leaders get cross. And in verse 7, they say, who does this guy think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus replies, verse, uh, verses 9 and 10, essentially saying to them, yes, only God can forgive sin. But only God can, just with his words, heal the paralyzed man. If you recognize in me the power to simply by my words recreate physical life, power that can only belong to God, why do you have trouble recognizing that I have the authority to forgive sin? Okay, now let's step back and look at the trajectory of the story up to this point. Jesus has displayed his power and authority over Satan, over demons, over sickness, over disease, over human life, over death, over all creation. But he says in verse 38, I haven't shown you my power and authority so that you'll keep asking me to solve those sorts of problems. I've shown you my power and authority so that you will see who I am. That I am the one who does have authority to forgive sin. Authority that belongs to God alone. In other words, Mark is telling us that Jesus is God. God come to earth announcing that the crisis point of human history has arrived. The king of all power, all authority, the king of the eternal kingdom has come. And only he has the authority to forgive sin. So repent and believe the good news. Okay. That's the big picture flow, but we still haven't been told exactly what the good news is. And that's why Mark tells us the story of the healing of the leper in verses 40 to 45. Because the story of the leper tells us in picture form the good news. It tells us how Jesus secures our forgiveness. So let's look at this episode from verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him, to Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, what was leprosy? Well, scholars agree that whatever the condition was, it was not the same disease that we call leprosy or Hansen's disease today. 
the term leprosy in the Bible covered a, a variety of conditions, and in its worst form, it progressed as follows, and I'll quote directly. It begins with specks on the eyelids and on the palms, gradually spreading over the body, bleaching the hair white, crusting the affected parts with white scales, and causing terrible sores and swellings. From the skin, the disease eats inward to the bones, rotting the whole body piecemeal. It was an awful disease. Lepers were required by law to live in isolation, away from the community. They could not, unless of course they were cured and there was a process for um, confirming whether or not that had happened, but unless they were cured, they weren't allowed to enter the temple. They couldn't join the community in worship. They had to live apart. The book of Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46 says, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be kept unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Now, Mark gives us a lot of detail about this encounter, and all of it will repay your careful study, but I don't want us to miss Mark's main point. This encounter begins with a man with leprosy, a man who has to, by law, live outside the camp. Remember that from the Leviticus passage. Lepers must live alone outside the camp. Uh, this leper, the man who, because of his uncleanness, had been excluded, approaches Jesus and begs him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus does make him clean. And at the end of the encounter, verse 45, where is Jesus? Jesus, Mark says, could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Jesus is now outside the camp. Jesus and the leper have traded places. This will become more explicit as Mark's gospel progresses, but even right here at the very beginning, we discover in picture form something about Jesus's mission. He didn't come just to display his power and authority. He came to secure the forgiveness of our sin. And though he is the king with absolute power and authority over every realm of creation, securing the forgiveness of our sin would require more than the exercise of power. It would require him to take our place. We are the spiritual lepers. The disease of sin clings to our nature. It infects every part of us. And like leprosy, it makes us unclean, unfit for the company of God, unfit for the glory of heaven. Like leprosy, it slowly but surely drags us down to the second death. And far worse than leprosy, it is a, it is a disease from which no one is exempt. In God's sight, we are all, as the prophet Isaiah tells us, like one who is unclean. 
Jesus's mission was to secure the forgiveness of sin by taking our place as he did on the cross. For our sake, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin for his righteousness, our leprosy for his life, our punishment for his reward. Jesus took our place and gave us his. All that remains is for you and I to repent and believe the good news. In our journey with the disciples today, we've seen something of Jesus's power, his authority. We've discovered that his mission wasn't about a display of power. His mission was to secure the forgiveness of our sin by taking our place. And now finally for today, and very briefly, in this passage, we discover something of his heart. Look with me from verse 40. The leper begs Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse 41, Jesus was indignant, or your translation might say moved with pity or moved with compassion. Indignant is the better translation. Jesus was indignant, angry, not at the man, but at the destruction that sin had released upon the world. So Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. I am willing, Jesus said. I am willing. Think of that, friends. Think of who it is that was willing to secure your cleansing by taking your place. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised one, beloved Son of the Father, Jesus who has all power, all authority, Jesus, the great high king without rival. That Jesus was willing, willing to take your place for the forgiveness of your sin so that you would no longer be excluded from the presence and the favor of God. He was willing to take your punishment. But more than that, look again at verse 41. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. He didn't need to do that. The gospel writers tell us elsewhere about a time when Jesus healed a Roman centurion servant from a distance. Jesus could have just spoken the words, be clean, and that would have been enough. But Jesus reached out and touched him. This man who had not been touched in who knows how many years. Jesus is the kind of king who reaches out and touches the untouchable. Who would ever imagine such a king? The king of all power and authority, the king of the eternal kingdom. Who would ever imagine that he would be this kind of king? The kind of king that reaches out and touches spiritual lepers like us, who by his touch says, not just you are forgiven, but you are wanted. You are welcome. Not just not guilty. Our salvation is not just that we that our punishment is taken away. Our salvation is that we are invited into relationship, 
into fellowship, into intimacy with the king himself. Who would imagine such a king, one willing to take our place and give us his, one who reaches out and touches us. But that is exactly who he is. That is the good news. And that is why he calls us repent and believe the good news. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your word because in your word you teach us who you are. You reveal to us your heart. Not just your power that we can see from looking up at the stars at night or the mountains. We see something of your power in creation. But in your word, we see your heart. We see who you are. We understand your mission. We learn that you came to save us. That our greatest problem is not threats from Satan. Our greatest problem is not disease or physical death. Our greatest problem is our sin, our guilt before a holy God. And for that you came to secure our salvation, to secure our forgiveness. You sent your son to take our place. To invite us into fellowship with yourself. Who would ever imagine such a God? Who could ever dream up such a savior? Thank you, Father. Amen.